the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider or sharing on social media. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have Sasha Stone in the house. Sasha Stone is a pioneering blogger and widely read Substack author who covers film and politics. Sasha Stone, thank you for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan. Well, let's talk for a moment about the realignment, the resorting of identities and perspective underway in our politics and culture. Bridget Phetasy speaks of the politically homeless, referring to the rising plurality, indeed close to a majority, of Americans who reject the enforced duopoly of the Democrats and Republicans and all the infrastructure beneath that in law, bureaucracy, and media. It's as if the legacy parties are in a war of attrition, prompting a mass of refugees who for the moment have no place to call home. Please tell us a bit about your views and experience amid this great reset. Mm, it is a great reset, isn't it? Um, I think that I've been contemplating a lot lately how the internet and social media have infected or impacted and infected our lives um, starting at the turn of the millennium. I've been online since 1994. And when I first got online, the internet was kind of a wide open, wild, wild west kind of place where anybody could start up any website and sort of be whoever they wanted to be. And over time, uh, social media kind of gathered us into these groups. And what I found was that in 2015, I had been reading these science fiction books. Um, uh, I was actually writing a science fiction uh, book myself, and I was reading these um, these scientists researching what would happen to our world and our country in 100 years. And so I started to get into a panic about it. I got into a panic about climate change, about um, you know declining birth rates and um, super viruses and things like that. So I was trying to do as much research as I could to try to make it a realistic look at what 2100 might look like. And um, and in doing that, I realized, you know what, the Democrats have to win in 2016 and the Democrats aren't going to win in 2016 because Hillary Clinton is going to be the candidate and there's no way she's getting elected. So I sort of threw myself into politics in a way that, frankly, all these years later, I feel like was a huge waste of time. It was a lot of arguing on social media, a lot of making videos, writing articles. And in the end, Trump won anyway. And I felt like I, I just sort of wasted my time um, now because my perspective has changed so wildly. So after 2016, you know, the Hillary Democrat, me, sort of older, single female, um, kind of collapsed, right? We just felt completely hopeless, like we'd lost everything all at once. And and as you saw, the desperation rise on the left. Anyway, so so that eventually, I, I was with them for four years while Trump was in power. I was along with them and, and everything that they believed and felt. And I fought alongside them. I was an early advocate for Joe Biden. 
And everything for me changed in the summer of 2020. And my perspective completely flipped. I left the Democratic Party. And now I write as a kind of person with no political affiliation, particularly on Substack. I didn't vote in 2022. And I'm like you, just kind of trying to figure it all out. So what happened with the internet? Because as you say, you were among the pioneers of it and taking it seriously and immersing yourself in it. And of course, it's so deeply related to the place where culture and politics intersect. How did it move, if it did, from being, as you said, the Wild West, where if there were problems, there might have been excessive individualism, to becoming now a situation where it's almost totalized, where people are paralyzed from acting and where they feel like any part of their life that's expressed online could open them up to consequences, even to their careers. Yeah. Well, two things. First, there's more people alive than ever before in human history, and there are more people connected to each other uh, than ever before in human history. And we are kind of we are kind of flying blind with this new technology. At the same time, there are things baked into our DNA that we never really left behind, like tribalism. Humans build tribes and fight wars, right? So it seems to me that in every group that I've ever been in online, whether it was about a true crime case or cooking or politics, the same pattern plays out. Everybody is united. Then it becomes this sort of little mini utopia. Then fractures begin to happen behind the scenes and they divide. And then the the group splits up and becomes, you know, two sort of like cell, you know, cell division in a way. And, and I think it explains probably a lot of why humans have always migrated that and, you know, the search for food. But I think that that social media, we just weren't prepared for for what it would do to us. I know I wasn't prepared because the insanity involved in being a Hillary Clinton supporter online, on Facebook and Twitter was, was unlike anything I've ever experienced. And leaving that hive mind, leaving that bubble was really hard to do because everything is sucked into it. So it's media, culture, uh, you know, most of the major institutions of power are all contained within this one leftist ideology. And so breaking out of it is really hard. It's it's sort of like living on the outskirts. But, you know, um, I think that how the internet evolved was that the, the, these Silicon Valley guys, you know, um, Jack Dorsey and, and, um, Bill Gates and and um, Jeff Bezos and these guys built these incredible systems, these incredible machines that, that that sought about putting people together, without realizing exactly what that meant. What was that going to do to us? I think it seemed great maybe in the beginning. Yeah, you'll just be friends with everybody all over the world. But when you look at it now, and and you look at Kenosha, for instance, how one story about Jacob Blake, wherein he supposedly broke up a fight and then was shot in the back by police. And that was the only story people got. And and within 24 hours, the city burned to the ground before anybody even had the sort of wherewithal to start thinking about it and putting it together and finding out exactly what did happen. Now, when you think, think about that and you, you think about our culture and how many people are, are connected, and it, it's going to have real world consequences at some point. I don't know if I'm distracting off into the main topic here, but but that's one thing that I noticed was that without the internet, 
meaning social media. Like I was online in 1994. I built my website in 1999. So I was on a film group, which was sort of an early version of a hive of mine. And we were all together in this cinema group and we talked to each other about movies all day long, all over the world. And I met my daughter's father on that group and it was my whole social life. And it, it like everything else, it fractured into two groups. And then there was the balcony, which were the more sophisticated film people, and then the other cinema group. And I was sort of, I found myself in between the two, not wanting to take either side. And that's always sort of feels like my role. I don't feel comfortable being with one group against another group. It makes me feel strange. So um, after 1999, <clears throat> I built my website. And then we had, you know, we have all these little forums and, and comment sections and communities that grow up around it. But social media took that, which was already a, pro, a a thing on the internet. It was just fractured. And he put us all together in a panopticon where everything that I say on Twitter can be seen by everybody, you know? And, and as human beings, we still care what our peers think of us. We care what our friends and family think of us. We need that. It makes us feel bad if we know they think poorly of us. And so really what you have to do if you're in my situation is you have to try to disconnect yourself from that primal need to be accepted and to be loved and to be okay with being hated. And when you leave a political identity, and you see this with political figures whose career is like this, but now it seems to be happening with lots of civilians as people engage in social media, to make a change in partisan affiliation has a lot of consequences. You lose networks, you lose friends, you lose uh, sort of automatic understandings, and you don't have a new one necessarily awaiting you. So it's a great amount of uncertainty. Mm, yeah, I was unprepared for it, actually. And what happened to me was even before I uh, became so sort of MAGA adjacent, which is what I'd call myself now, just meaning that I, I sort of fight and defend for the people that I feel are getting marginalized and ostracized by by culture by uh, the dominant culture um it's just my in my nature to defend people I, I see are being attacked or the underdog um but i i was still unprepared for it because just speaking out on twitter just befriending conservatives at all even before you get to trump supporters i'm talking about joe walsh and rick wilson and these charlie sykes and these guys even just befriending them was like making friends with the KKK to my <laughs> to my drive on Twitter. And so I was really told to shut up by Neera Tandon herself who worked with the, the Hillary issue. You know, she wanted me to be quiet online because we were heading into the election and I was starting to speak out and saying, what's going on? You know, we're all losing our minds. And um, but I'm lucky that my business, which is awardsdaily.com, my website, I didn't feel that the financial hit that I thought I would, that never happened. Um, they were able to separate it for some reason, but, but yeah, I mean, you, you do feel the, I don't feel it as much as the Trump supporters must, you know, anybody who showed up at January 6th or anywhere else, like what it must feel like to be that person, you know, and to be treated badly just for supporting or voting somebody in school or in a store or something like that. Well, let, let's remind people, in case uh, some aren't familiar, Neera Tandon is a presidential aide who had been nominated for Senate confirmation to be in a very high position, I think the head of the Office of Management and Budget, but her social media, which she then sought to erase, 
uh, all at once, but a lot of it screen captured in today's world, uh, was her doom because she had been so scabrous toward people she disagreed with. Uh, so it was a very interesting story. Let, before we get to 2020, let's stay a minute more in 2016, because it was very interesting what you said about the great sense of catastrophe, perhaps I'm putting a word in, you could decide if it's useful or not, at the defeat of Hillary Clinton. How did that become such a totalizing experience? Because this is interesting in that she's not a charismatic figure. She's sort of a person like Richard Nixon who garners respect from people that like her. But, uh, and that's important, and projects a, a dogged striving for competence, uh, but not a person of, of sort of great uh, inspiring gifts that you would normally link with supportedly calling it passion or negatively anger among people. How do you process that now eight, seven years later? Well, it's funny, right? Because I was such a devoted Hillary Clinton. You know what it was is I made myself like her. I made myself admire her in order to help her. And I made videos uh, about her. I wrote long essays and, and her campaign noticed. I was informed that they read my stuff. That's how I ended up getting invited to a, a Joe Biden luncheon later. They thought of me as some kind of influencer on the left. I am the right demographic after all. Um, but the Hillary story is longer than that, right? Because it goes back to two, it goes back to the 90s when, when I was uh, a young woman and, and a Democrat and defending Bill Clinton and, you know, defending Hillary Clinton and as the uh, the, 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 the Republicans um, went after them, right, for the entire time he was in power. It was, it was one thing after another, and they finally got him. And it didn't sit well with any of us in 1999, that, and then to have, you know, and to have George Bush, George W. Bush win in, in 2000, 2001, I mean, 2000, right, right before 9/11, when our country completely changed, we we had the dark days, the the Bush years, and so for us, Hillary was like kind of like Obama. It was sort of this new dawn, this new America, this new utopia, and so when she went and sought, you know, she she became a senator. We admired her for that. She was very well liked as a senator, and then when she ran as the opponent of 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 Obama, my friends and I took the Hillary side. You know, we weren't the we didn't want to support Obama. We thought he was too young. We wanted it to be the first female president. Identity politics all the way, right? She seemed like she was qualified and she was a woman and we wanted to see that history happen. And so when Obama got the nomination, we we of course threw our support behind him and built this kind of utopia. But I think that many of us were waiting for it to be Hillary's turn. And I think Obama probably, I have no idea if this is true, but I imagine he made some sort of a bargain with her that when it was done, he was he was going to hand the the reins to her after instead of traditionally it would have been Joe Biden because he's the vice president. But the former secretary of state and former first lady ended up becoming his successor, which in the end was a mistake, I think, for them, because I think it it set about a, a kind of a war on the left that that ended up helping them to lose. But so so for me, you know, of course, I got into that idea of feminism, of, of Hillary finally winning, of smashing the patriarchy, you know, and 
um, really thinking she's because she is she's incredibly smart and I've done deep dives in her history. I've listened to her speeches and I got to know her uh, in a way that I don't think a lot of people see, not personally, but just in my observations of her trying to find the good in her. And so I think that we all took it really personally. We took Bernie personally. We took his candidacy, his supporters personally. We took everything Trump said personally. And we felt very um, defiant and defensive of her uh, because of how Bill had treated her and then how Trump was treating her. To us, Hillary was both very empowered but also a victim. You know, um, she was our own sort of feminist martyr. And so I think that, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 please. I didn't mean to stop you. Oh, I was just going to say that, 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 so for us, the idea that, that the, this one, this moment, you know, that that was going to be snatched away from us. And I I was one of the few people that knew Trump was going to win. And I was doing that thing that I always do, which is the chicken little, the sky is falling to all of my Facebook friends. And I say, look, this, look at these four way polls in the swing states. Trump is pulling ahead when you have Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, I think his name was. And they wouldn't listen to me. No, no, she's going to win. Hillary has this. And they would laugh at me and they thought it was so funny. So I bet somebody a hundred bucks Trump would win. And of course he did win, not for the reasons that I thought, but he ended up having a better strategy um, than, than she did. But I think for all of us, it was such an unimaginable thing that even though I was sort of anticipating it, I wasn't really prepared for the emotional reaction. Now, again, remember, more people alive than ever before connected together than ever before. So when we feel an emotion, we feel it across all platforms, all at once. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people feeling something all at once. Now, human beings have never experienced anything even remotely like this before. So I don't think that we could really understand what was happening to us. After that, I think we were just reacting. Um, Before we get to 2020, uh, let's say as a segue from 2016, let's think for a moment. uh, What is your sense looking back of how political identity of a significant number of engaged people? And of course, we're talking about the sort of core, not the mass of the population, but there is a definite uh, intensifying sense of identity expressing through politics that you see in both the legacy parties. How do you look at that now? Well, I see it completely differently now because I've gotten such an education in the last seven years and my my perspective has completely changed and something nobody can really understand about me that, that I could change that much because they only know me from the Hillary person, you know, or the movie person or the activist or whatever. But what I know now is that it was baked in. And, and that's the thing that I've seen that, that I, I can't unsee and I can't understand is this, this I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but, but this administrative state, this very powerful government system that doesn't allow for outsiders and is locked into the blue and red, and they're not that different from each other, but for a few issues here or there, you look at any you know, the, the war in Iraq or, or uh, Ukraine. Um, I know, I know that that's a different sort of issue, but, um, but if you just look at how they aligned and, and that's where you can see how people agree. And then, and then the outsiders from that um, are people who are not invited to participate 
in government. Not and and it's it's made worse now because there are millions of people in this country that aren't even invited to participate in culture anymore and in the economy of America anymore. They're just pushed to the outer regions because they don't fit in. They don't comply with with what has become of our country. But so so that's what I saw. And and now I know that the Bernie people were right. And, you know, very few politicians I can even trust. Tulsi Gabbard's one of them, you know, where I hear what she says and it makes sense to me and I trust that she's being honest. But that's a few and far between. I feel like the fix was in with Hillary. She was, you know, we, we, we fought a bloody revolution to get Russell free from a monarchy. But now we've got some kind of a similar dynasty thing going on in our government with the Bushes and the Clintons. And, and they did not like to have that power disrupted or challenged. And so that's what I've seen. I've seen that powerful force come roaring back and attempt to take back control. So 2020, tell us exactly what happened in your mind as you observed the turmoil following Memorial Day and the murder of George Floyd. Well, I I was just thinking about this because I was just writing about it, which is that I had my daughter's graduation from NYU on our balcony. And she was sent home in March of her senior year at NYU. Um, And I had gotten into debt to send her there because it was her dream and my dream that she attend this university. And she was going to graduate. I'm a single mom. I only have one kid. And it was a big deal for me that I was going to watch my daughter graduate. I'm I'm the first person in my family to graduate college. And I was very proud that my daughter was going to be graduating. And she was sent home, and I was already really angry about that. I mean, I was a compliant liberal. I was like sewing uh, my quick, own- quick, quick clarification. Sasha, we're talking about COVID now for this part. That's why she was yeah, sent this home. Is the, right? This is yeah, that's right. Uh, that's that that that's the prelude to to where it goes because mm-hmm. she was sent home. You know, all the stuff that was happening in our culture to deal with this pandemic. Right, we were sewing our own masks. We were making our own hand sanitizers. I was staying home. I was completely isolated. And we did all this because we were trying to be on lockdown. We were trying to be good citizens. And then all of a sudden, in Memorial Day weekend, this video goes viral, and millions of people, hundreds of millions all over the world, get out into the streets and are protesting everywhere. And I just took pictures of them. They're they're in France, they're in you know Canada. And if you want to spread a virus, you know, what better way than to get everybody out at a time when everybody's supposed to be locked down and and controlling this thing. But at the same time, we had all these health professionals saying, oh, no, it's fine because they're outside and and racism is more important. Systemic racism is more important than, than pandemic. But it didn't make sense to me that they would make that dramatic of a switch in the media and in our politics to allow for this when we had just all of us practically ruined our lives and, and put things on hold to do, to do this, to, to help the government, to help deal with the pandemic. And here were these protests. And But the thing I noticed was that they weren't reporting them. They weren't talking about them. They weren't telling me why there were helicopters circling overhead with curfews and why there were people chanting through neighborhoods that I could hear, why the windows were boarded up. It was as though it wasn't even happening because it was too controversial to even talk about on the left. 
And so I found myself drifting over to the right to find news about this that was going on that I wasn't finding out on my news sources. And I eventually found my way over into Magaland, you know, and I and I started watching Trump's rallies and talking to those people and humanizing them and realizing how much of what I knew about them was wrong. Um, and and that was really the beginning of, you know, sort of felt like peeling an orange, you know, like all this stuff started to fall away. And I, I saw it, I thought that I was seeing things as they really are for the first time. So when you said you became, this is your term, if I got it right, Trump adjacent, what you're suggesting, if I'm hearing right, and please elaborate or correct me, is that you found that the identity or identitarian uh, explanations of the other side that goes back to 2016, you were finding those to be less credible and that resulted or prompted you to question a number of things, orthodoxies in your world. Is that a fair statement? It's a fair statement because if you start with the idea that we were caught up in a mass hysteria episode over two things, which was uh, rape and racism, right? We thought Trump was a sexual assaulter and we thought he was a racist and a white supremacist. And even Joe Biden thought that's why he he said he ran because of Charlottesville. And he believed that, that and a lot of people still believe that. And I believed it. And I had spent much of my life writing about movies from a critical race and gender perspective. And so I was very attuned to it. And I went along with them, the Muslim ban and the, you know, the uh, immigrants or rapists and murderers. I went all along with all the narratives that said, this is what Trump represents. This is what he's threatening. And all of these years later, I realized that it was just because we had turned the sort of Obama presidency into a kind of religion and he was offending our king. You know, he was offending our leader with the birth certificate stuff. And it's not surprising people would go there. And so I understood that. And I understood that people think that about him. But I had to find out for myself. I had to find out. You are joining this group of people, dehumanizing another group of people. What is true and what isn't, you know? And I watched every one of Trump's rallies. Like, he did five a day heading into the election. I watched every single one and I got to know his supporters. I listened to Steve Bannon's War Room podcast. I, I watched Tucker Carlson. I listened to Ben Shapiro. And not that they're all Trump supporters or anything, but but believe me, this is like absolute uh, forbidden on my side to even mention these names. They, if you, If I talk to anybody in my family and I mention any of these names, they will immediately start to get upset with me and melt down. They can't even have a conversation about it. They speak with such hatred um, of Trump and his supporters that um, it's hard for me to understand because I know that world now and I know who they are. I know what Trump's weaknesses are and what his strengths are. But for me, I was a friend of mine had overdosed. My daughter moved away to go live with her boyfriend. I was completely alone. And every time I got online, all I saw was this unfiltered, bottomless hatred from people I knew, all like with no checks on it at all, no shame, all aimed at Trump and his supporters. And it it really disturbed me. Um, and then I went over to Trump's side and it was exactly the opposite. It was a love fest, you know? They loved him, he loved them, they were happy, they were celebrating. 
I often um, compare it to like the uh, the Who's and Whoville in the Dr. Seuss uh, book because the Grinch takes everything away from them, the tree, the presents, everything. And he sits there and waits and he expects them to be so upset because he's he's ruined their Christmas. And they're just out there singing. They're dancing and they're singing and they're having a good time because they know that it doesn't. it's not about the material stuff. And so for me, I naturally wanted to be in the in the light of love and not in the, the ray of hatred. So. so how would you respond to someone who might be listening to your point of view and say, uh, Sasha Stone is a person of great passion and involvement, and she has simply transferred that from one tribe to the other, <laughs> and that perhaps she's not seeing either one clearly when she's in it. I mean, I think that there's something to be said for that. I know that that people would think that there are, you know, most of us human beings want to feel like we belong to a tribe. And, you know, I will say that the Trump supporters are nicer to me than than anybody on the left ever was. Um, and even now that's true. But the thing is, is that I have to think about this a lot because I'm not MAGA, right? I don't believe what they believe. And I'm not a conservative. You know, my... My ideas are, you know, different than theirs. They talk a lot about the border. They talk a lot about uh, certain Dr. Fauci and things that, that, you know, just aren't my issues. So, you know, I run this Substack where a lot of them, probably 80% of them are Trump supporters or close to it or outsiders, just not friendly uh, of the left or the Democrats. And I have to be really careful that I'm always writing the truth. You know, I'm not giving in to audience capture. I'm not telling them what they want to hear um, in some sense. I think I do tell them what they want to hear in the sense of the things that we share, the things that we both believe. Um, but I think I have to be careful that I don't slip into that, um, you know, to betray my own values, I guess. And, and it doesn't matter because people on the left and in the middle think that I'm a Trump supporter, right? They, they already think that. So even people like Megan Daum and um, Andrew Doyle, people I really admire who are in the middle, they were my friends and then they weren't my friends anymore. And I have to conclude that that's because they think I'm too MAGA, right? They think I'm too Trump friendly for them because they, they, they draw that line too. So where do you see all this headed? We're moving into an election cycle and these election cycles seem now never to end. But it's going to start very fast. The first presidential debates will be in the summer of 2023. Where do you see all this going? What's next? Well, I understand that. And the thing I'm writing about right now is that the Democrats have nothing left but Trump. They have obsessed on him for the last seven years when they could have been building a better, more positive movement. Joe Biden only really cares about identity, politics and equity. The rest of it is all about Trump. He is a weak president who has damaged our uh, our stature in the world and is taking our country, I think, to a very dark place. And the only way he can win is if Trump is the candidate and he can't win any other way. And so it is in their interests to keep him in play, even though people on that side, Rob Reiner and people like that, want to see him convicted I don't think the Democrats do. I think they want, but let's just say that Trump is uh, not the nominee and it's Ron DeSantis or the one I like, which is Glenn Youngkin. 
um, then the Democrats are out of power for a generation. But think about this one last thing, which is that I think my own intuition right now tells me that Trump will be the nominee because he can't help it. He is too, he's a, he's a guy who likes to win and he hates to lose and he'll take the whole party down with him um, in, in pursuit of that victory. Uh, and I don't think he really cares all that much. He just wants to fight with Joe Biden again to prove that he can win, but he can't win against Joe Biden. If he could, he would have in the midterms in 2022. I'm not talking about the election of 2020, but the midterms, that was a chance for, for Trump's power to really show itself. And it didn't. It showed that the independents flipped to the Democrats because Trump was too volatile. I don't think this country is going to elect a person who led a protest against the presidential results. I think that even without the riot, they wouldn't, that they don't like that because that's too unstable for people. So let's just say that he's not the nominee. Well, then it's Ron DeSantis and it's an easy win for the GOP, right? That's how I see it anyway. How about you? <laughs> you know, I, I have been independent so long now and I'm so outraged by both of the parties and I, I believe it's complicity to support them in their current form. Mm. And so I, I don't claim to be objective on this and I, I I like to learn from smart people like you and our listeners how to think about it. So let's look ahead then. Uh, is there anything you see in Hollywood that's going to be different? There seems to be a lot of, because you're an expert on the Oscars and you've been deep in that culture for a generation. And it seems like to those of us on the outside, that they're in this peculiar position where they put out a movie like the new Top Gun with Tom Cruise that dominates at the box office, yet seems entirely separate and even looked down upon by a lot of people in Hollywood. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the same thing that's happened to politics has happened to Hollywood and everything else on the left. You know, the, this elite sort of group, this, this uh, you know, the, the controlling forces in the party and, and in Hollywood, it's, it's the controlling, the people at the top in Hollywood who care more about their image than anything else. They use the Oscars as a way to f absolve themselves of their sins of success and privilege. So to them oh, and to the activists on Twitter, it, it is sort of this idea of evening out the score. So the same way we were, you know, first black president, first female president, first gay president, all that. It's the same in Hollywood in the Oscars. It's like first female director, first woman of color winner, first film of all color, you know. So they're far, far from the what the majority likes, what the majority wants, because the truth is they don't like the majority anymore. It's too white, right? And it's not they they don't agree with 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 their politics and their their ideology. So um, I think that they're in this constant pull between the free market, which is people that want to go and see movies like Top Gun, right? You put a white guy in the lead, you give him. You know, he wins the day. He has a, uh, a you know, a girlfriend, a love story and, and a lot of action. And it's really well directed and funny. And that is going to appeal to the majority of Americans who are majority white. Now, majority heterosexual, majority Christian. Now, that makes it sound like I'm saying people only want to see white people in movies. It's not true. If you give them a good story, it doesn't matter who they cast in the lead. It is this idea of the, the male hero. You know, the the 
macho man of, of, that, that, that seems to be absent in Hollywood movies. And I think that that is a structure in human society that, that is never going away. And so if you, you decide to mess with that, um, that sort of hierarchy, that status uh, of the male hero, you know, which is something that, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell, uh, the, you know, the hero's journey, it's Joseph Campbell, right? Did I get that yes. right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, the hero's journey. Based that's, on that's... Jungian archetypes and so on, or is aligned okay. with yeah. it, yeah. I think I think on the left and in Hollywood, they want that not to be the case. And they want to tell people what they should like and what they should want, as opposed to, you know, what they want, which is to see a fantasy version of themselves on screen, basically. How much of this is related to the move that Rui Teixeira, the tremendous analyst uh, and others have been following the migration of the highly of conventionally educated people, I prefer to say credential because often now education is not being imparted by these schools, in my opinion. But but there's this uh, meritocratic sorting that they believe gives them a sort of entitlement to tell others what to do. And then there's also a sense, some would argue, that they're laboring with the guilt of those that haven't built, uh, which is not something unique in our country, you see it in various countries, particularly if people with expectations of being so-called elites are overproduced or feel underappreciated. Yeah. Um, I think that if we continue to go down the direction we're headed, which is to eliminate the meritocracy and uh, punish people who are smart and successful just because they're not the right skin color they're not the right now i un i understand that a lot of people on the left will say well it's payback time you know because for you know for most of our existence in this country that 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 was the case it was it was only you know given and afforded to to white men um but the problem with that is that in doing so you lose your best scientists you lose your best pilots you lose your best doctors you lose your best writers and I'm not saying that only the best are, are white men. I, I am saying that if you're not aiming for, for high achievement, what is the point of America at all? What is the point of having a country that is the land of opportunity? Where anybody, you know, I go to other countries, I've only been to a few in my life, but I was always so happy to come back here prior to this recent phase of our, our our lives, I would come back to America and I would think, I love this country. I can be anything I want here. I can build anything I want. I can write anything I want. I can think anything I want. I can wear anything I want. And I never felt that in France or, or Italy or anywhere else that I traveled. And I just thought, I'm so lucky to live here because of that. Like, it's just an open door. And I'm, you know, I do feel bad that, that it hasn't been an open door for everybody. But we can't then say we're going to open the door for everybody, but then we're going to decide who gets to walk through it. You know, we have to it has to be about what it what the nature of this country is, you know, why people come here, why Vivek Ramaswamy's parents wanted to come here, you know, because of, I'm in America, you can rise, you know, or you could. Well, excellent. That's a great place to end. Are there any further thoughts you would like to share or anything about how people can best follow you and your work? 
Well, I would like to say that please don't think that because I said Tom Cruise was a white guy that that's necessary. I, I can feel that this thing is going to hang over my head and someone might cherry pick it, but I didn't mean it that way. I just meant that that's stat the standard for what Hollywood used to be. Um, and it did so well, they made 700 million with it. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're interested in, in what I write, uh, what I say about politics, my Substack is sashastone.substack.com and my uh, website, which I'm not really uh, writing on right now because it's the off season, um, but that's awardsdaily.com if you're interested in that. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Sasha Stone. It's been a delight to have you with us. And I would underscore what many have found her Substack on free thinking for the fourth turning will definitely get you thinking whether you agree or disagree or you're just trying to think things through. And thank you to our listeners for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.